Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule, four things they cherish and wish to preserve, and one they'd like to bury and never have to think about again. My guest today is the writer and stand-up comedian Ahir Shah. Ahir has been doing stand-up since he was 15, when he first started doing open mic shows. He soon established himself on the circuit and continued to perform through school and his time at Cambridge University, where he studied politics, psychology and sociology. Since then, he has very successfully toured his own shows all over the world. He performs on and writes for the BBC Two satirical news show, The Mash Report, and is a popular guest on various panel shows, including Have I Got News For You, Frankie Boyle's New World Order, and Radio 4's The News Quiz, and Explicable Me. You may also have seen him on Live at the Apollo. So, let's find out the five things that I hear wants to put in a time capsule, and plenty of other things including the lesson for all you budding podcast makers out there to remember to put the microphone as close to yourself as your guest. You'll see, well, in fact, you'll hear what I mean. Still, enjoy the podcast. Lovely, Ahir. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for being part of my time capsule. Not at all. But in fact, it's your time capsule. Yeah. So, yes, we were talking just before we started this, we were talking about your extraordinary move from being a comprehensive schoolboy in Watford. To Wembley. In Wembley. The other W. The yeah. other northern W. Yeah. In, in North Wembley. of London. So yeah. you were there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so on the mean streets of Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly Cambridge. Yeah. Doing, uh, doing politics. Yeah. Not many people from Wrexham did end up in that situation. <laughs> 
which is maybe a terrible insight into the, the state of British education, that not many people end up making that jump. Yeah, I suppose it, it's mainly, I think, just uh, what you actively believe is open to you uh, when you're at that formative stage of mid-teens or whatever. Like, I still remember being, uh, like, 14, 15 and stood outside a particular classroom uh, at Preston Manor and some of my friends, like, gently, like, ribbing me about, like, oh, Ahir's probably going to go Oxford or something like that. And I'm, I just said, no, that's for rich white people. Uh, and thankfully, I then, like, it was largely, like, the influence of uh, my parents and two teachers who were very influential and, like, no, you should go down that path and we think that that uh, holds something for you. And, yeah, I'm thankful that I didn't listen to 15-year-old me. Yeah. How extraordinary how often that uh, uh, teachers can be that influential in your life, completely change the direction of where you're going. Oh, absolutely. And, like, I, I know that from the fact that uh, my mother is retired now, but she was a primary school teacher for her career. Uh, and still in the local area, like, one of my favourite things to tell people about her is that she has been on several occasions walking down the high road in the local area and had a person in their 20s or 30s pushing a pram and the mother or father saying to the child in the pram, that's Mrs. Shah, that's who taught me how to read. And, like, to, to remember that positive influence from someone from when you were five years old is such a remarkable thing. And just says, yeah, like the, the sheer amount of power that she had in shaping these lives at such a crucial stage. And thank God she was good at her job. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. God knows how many people she could have screwed over over the course <laughs> well, of the decade. I decades. think there are teachers who screwed <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely one, one's at my school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always found it uh, interesting. My, um, because I went to the primary school that my mother taught at, and she never wanted me to be in her class, but she was always, like, before I went up to the next year, she would say, oh, can I hear go in X's class for year two and Y's class for year three? I was like, I always thought that... It must, it must have been very offensive to the teachers that she didn't choose. <laughs> I was like, I what's wrong you, with me? Why I don't that? want you teaching my son. Yeah. Why is Joanne so much better than me? <laughs> 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 That's terrible. They suddenly feel like complete failure. Yeah. Damn, I didn't get out here. Yeah, whereas the ones who did are just walking around Wembley strutting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. So when did you go to Cambridge? How long ago was that? Uh, that was uh, quite a while ago now. It was um, I matriculated in 2009 uh, and left in 2012. Ah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, sufficiently like another life now. And you were doing stand-up right the way through? Uh, yeah, well, that was part of the, the <laughs> part of the reason that I uh, wanted to go there was that I knew that the Footlights existed uh, as a thing and was interested in taking part in something with other young people who were obsessed about the same thing that I was obsessed with. Mm. Comedy. Yes, exactly. It can become a complete obsession, can't it? It is, and it's just like the most valuable uh, thing is just to be stuck in a room with people who are nerds about the same thing that you're a nerd about yeah. is always going to be astonishingly valuable. Yes, I remember the same feeling myself. That thing of suddenly finding people who were like-minded. Yeah. Who got the jokes that you were making, in fact. Often people around you, they'd, they'd look at you with a blank expression, thinking, what are you talking about? You think it was a joke. Oh, is there a point where that stops happening? <laughs> <laughs> Is that, <laughs> if that's your audience. I've, I've been in this game a while. And I'm still, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think you'll find the hardest crowd will be television executives. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we have this time capsule that you're going to put five items into. Yeah. So uh, let's work our way through it and see what you've got. What have you got for your first item? Let's. Well, I, I wanted to check before beginning that I'm not consigning these things away. Like, they still get to exist in the world because some of them are things that I actually enjoy in the world and still experience. And so I don't want them to be, you know, buried under a community centre for the next century. (laughs) No, but they're protected. Okay, protected. Okay, that's good. That's good. Uh, In which case, uh, the thing that I will open with is the very specific smell of a Gujarati kitchen and specifically my mother's kitchen where it's generally starts off, regardless of what you're making, with um, heated oil, uh, whole spice, regardless of uh, which which will differ depending on what you're uh, making. So be it um, cumin or methi or mustard seeds or anything like that. Then you'll have some ground asafoetida, some ground turmeric, put everything into it. Towards the end, you'll be adding coriander and cumin powder and a reshampati, a chili powder. And that smell for me is just so evocative of home and to the extent like now that I cook that sort of food now that I'm out of the family home and a bit older I remember growing up my mother was always very keen on all of the windows being open while she was doing that because she's like oh I don't want to get cooking smells in the clothes I don't want to get cooking whereas I'm the absolute opposite oh like I don't use the extractor fan specifically because I want to smell of curry, really. Uh, and would, it, it's only um, since I've um, got in my 20s that I realised what that generational shift was, where undoubtedly for, in, in my mother's generation, the fact that you would have that smell on you for, from the cooking of the family home was a marker of difference and a marker of difference that you may feel shame uh, as a result of, or may be made to feel shame uh, yeah. as a result of. Whereas now, it's obviously still a marker of difference, although less so than it was when my mother came here uh, in the uh, early 1970s. But it's a marker of difference, which I'm very much proud of, that I know this is like, a, delicious, <laughs> B, I'm carrying forward a culinary tradition that was taught to me by my mother and everything. So I think that that's a, that's a, whole, a whole thing of um, the immigrant experience and the difference between the first generation and second generation immigrant experience and the maintenance of a culture and being part of two cultures and everything for me and, and my family is, is all encapsulated in that single thing of asafoetida hitting a pan. Oh, yes. So have you spent much time in India? Uh, Not as much as I'd like. I've I've been over a few times. The last time that I was there was in the winter of 2017, Mm. uh, where I did a stand-up tour of a bunch of Indian cities uh, and then at the end went to see... Because my father's side of the family are basically all in Gujarat, in in Ahmedabad specifically. So I spent time with them uh, Mm. But the reason that I would spend time with that was largely because uh, my uh, paternal grandmother, who uh, we will talk about later, she lived in the UK with us until I was five uh, when she was deported and was very much sort of second mother to me. So I was just obsessed with her. uh, And like in that sort of... Because when someone's taken away from you like that, you get locked in a specific point of time Mm. in that relationship. So I would always feel like a five-year-old boy when I was with her. Yeah. Um, so the last time that I was there was 
So I was, you know, 26 the last time that I was there, but that was when she was coming to the end of her life and she's passed away now. Mm. Uh, so there's less reason uh, yes. now in some way. So wh- why was your grandmother deported? Um, so basically, uh, I, I have inherited uh, two things uh, from my grandmother uh, or, or have two consequences of her life that I carry with me uh, throughout my life, which are A, excellent hair, and uh, <laughs> B, a deep-seated and abiding hatred of the Conservative Party. This <laughs> uh, <laughs> is basically... Um, Changes in immigration rules that were brought in by the major government uh, that uh, led to... So, like, regardless of any... You know, and we, we all have the conventional sort of, like, drift rightwards, the older uh, that we get and everything. And I think of, like, me 10 years ago, as I suppose, like, far left, and now I'm centre, centre left and everything. But any time I read a policy that, I'm like, that the Conservatives are doing, I'm like, oh, maybe that's not so bad. I'm like, no, they stole your nan. <laughs> they, yeah. did, they did not... Uh, <laughs> So, so the reason behind uh, her having to go was um, she moved to the UK when she'd been widowed, just on the understanding that my father as her eldest child would be the best-placed person to look after her yeah. in that um, situation. Uh, and then uh, that worked out brilliantly uh, for the first five years of my life. And then these uh, changes came about, uh, and it meant that because she had another son in India... Oh, and, you know, she was at the time in her mid-60s and I'm like, look, you're probably only going one way in terms of the relationship between what you're paying into the state and what you're getting back from the state and everything's so no done in a, in, a, in a rather cold, calculating way, oh, uh, which was particularly cold and calculating when you realise that uh, my uncle is estranged from the rest of the family and the last time he saw his own mother was when he uh, told her that the next time he saw her would be at her funeral. Oh, and that's who the government were like, go live with that lad, that'll, uh, that'll work out fine. Just because he's abroad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he doesn't live here. Yeah, exactly. Thanks a lot. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? So when you go to India, do you feel at home there or do you feel just British? Uh, you do become slightly... Like, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because of uh, Mrs May's thing of, like, if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere, mm. um, which I feel as though... The subtext when she said it, I vastly disagree with. But that as a general statement, I think there is actually something too. Because you can end up, despite the fact that I was born in Britain and have lived here my whole life, there is something where you you feel slightly placeless, uh, I think, uh, occasionally, if you're visibly second generation as I am. So, for example... I remember the last time I was in India, I was in a pub in uh, Bangalore. And I just was stood there just having a conversation with all of these people. And I was like, something about this feels weird. What feels strange about this? I don't, I I can't quite put my head around it. So it took a minute just to uh, think about it. And I realised that it was the first time that I'd ever been in a bar where I wasn't visibly different uh, to everyone, right? Like, um, that everyone there was also there she and actually when we were talking and the jokes that were being cracked at me was that oh i'm the outsider because i'm the english guy uh Uh, right so it's odd like 
here there's always a bit in like certain spaces and certain, like I will always be consciously or subconsciously the Indian guy yeah. and over there I'm always consciously or subconsciously the English guy uh, so where <laughs> I don't know where my place is it's probably, geographically my place is probably around St. Petersburg or something or that but I was halfway between that's very unfair isn't yeah it? <laughs> But that's when you hyphenate, right? Like, I, I'm entirely comfortable with saying I'm British Indian, and yeah. that, to me, means something slightly different to British and slightly different to Indian. And, of course, the, the experience of being British Indian today is very different to the experience your parents would have had coming here in the 70s. Oh, yeah, they didn't have a chance of the Exchequer, baby. <laughs> 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 Finally in control of the purse strings. <laughs> Just need to figure out that Rishi Bhai is actually a sleeper agent and his first budget will include the repatriation of the coin. Or <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord, don't say it. <laughs> no, what it's probably going to include is uh, more tax relief for people who don't need it. That's the way of it, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. There's not much you can do about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> I realised. Apart from, uh, I don't know, a vote <laughs> or assassination. <laughs> One or the other. Uh, I would like to make it clear that both Michael and I advocate the former yes, and uh, not the latter. Not no, the latter, no, very important. I'm putting my gun down now. <laughs> I, I just remembered um, listening to the budget when uh, Mr Hammond was um, delivering it uh, a few years back. And I was in Brussels just walking around, like, listening to it on headphones. And I realised that for the first time in my life, things in a Conservative budget were going to actively benefit me. And it was because I was no longer a properly young person. (laughs) And I was earning a certain amount and everything. I'm like... Oh God, things have really changed actually. Like this is... It's a difficult thing, isn't it, where you realise that you're constantly voting against your own interests. <laughs> yeah, well this but then this is also why uh you know, I get quite annoyed when people discuss the fact that, you know, so many people who voted to leave the European Union were voting against their own self-interest. And you're like, yes, if self-interest is narrowly defined in economic terms, then yeah. a lot of people have voted against their self-interest. But I often vote against my economic self-interest because I ha- we all have sort of uh, overlapping circles of self-interest because none of ourselves are reducible to anything. And that's why it becomes so frustrating when uh, people on the left play this game, particularly uh, in relation to the European Union, Mm. where you're like, "Uh, right, you realise that what you're doing here is essentially trying to make us all into homo economicus, the rational agent uh, is just reducible to the things in our pocket. It's... Multiple layers of interest. Like my uh, mother's first general election that she would have been able to vote in was uh, the first election where Miss Thatcher came in in '79, uh, and before then, my uh, late grandfather, who was the prototypical like small C conservative, as many people from that generation and culture were, you know, like family values, entrepreneurial. Hard work gets you somewhere, don't want to rely on anyone else for anything, uh, sort of thing, law and order, yeah. But he never voted uh, for the Conservative Party, and uh, he said to my mother before her first general election, which has always stuck with me since my mum told me, he said, I will never tell you how to vote, uh, but the one thing that I would say is that I would suggest not voting for the Conservative Party because the Conservative Party don't care about people like us. And that has remained true for me of the kinds of us that I particularly care about being. Mm -hmm. uh, And the kind 
of us that I care about being is not the kind that is particularly concerned with the personal impact of marginal tax rates. Uh, <laughs> on, uh, yeah, quite. I think you're wise. <laughs> That's my personal opinion. <laughs> so I love the idea of this uh, kitchen smelling of Gujarati food. Yeah, and, and then it means that someone, when they open up the time capsule, they'll get the hit yeah, of that. They'll, they'll go, where's that? Where's that? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's right down the bottom with first thing we put in. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to dig deep. You're going to have to dig through all my other things mm. before you find it. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Yeah, so in fact, also, everything else is imbued with this smell. Mm. So that leads us on to our, to our second curry-smelling <laughs> item. Yeah. Well, this one, I'm going to stick with uh, food on this one, because this, this also encapsulates a sort of experience of being on a holiday and stuff like that as well. But um, I was in Mexico City in December of 2018, and I was just walking around with my then-girlfriend, and I was super, super hungry. She wasn't, and there was just like... In Mexico City, it's just dotted with these little uh, food stalls on every street corner. I was like, oh, I'll just pop in there and get something quick. And uh, I don't speak Spanish, she does speak Spanish, uh, so uh, and there was nothing that looked vegetarian on there. Um but she just explained to the guy that uh, I didn't eat meat and was there anything that they could do. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll knock something up. And it was extraordinarily simple. It was just like a blue corn tortilla uh, that they made into a quesadilla with um, queso and some potatoes and some other stuff, uh, like some spices and things. But I just remember sitting there and eating the first one of these uh, and then being like, do you mind if I get... And, and, get, and I would just keep, like, finishing one and going and getting another because it was unbelievably delicious, but also, like, I felt bottomless. Uh, <laughs> at that, uh, and there was something, uh, like, just a, this really intensely uh, pleasant feeling of being on a street corner in the sunshine with someone I love, drinking Coca-Cola and trying to fill an absolute crater in me that I didn't know had previously existed because this thing was just so goddamn delicious. And yeah, I was just very happy in that moment. So I've eaten very little Mexican food, so uh, it's not an experience I share. Quite often, people find it difficult to adapt to other forms of food. Mm. You know, I mean, I always find if I go to Germany, I just think, so much meat. So yeah. much sort of cured meat as well. I can't... Well, I I've, I've also found... Sort of Eastern Europe in particular, when I've travelled there, I've found quite difficult as a vegetarian. Uh, yeah. There are many countries like... where it's difficult to be a vegetarian, mm. even today. Yes. Yeah. My daughter was a vegetarian for many years. She isn't anymore, strangely. But uh, that was due to pregnancy. Oh, well, then... so she, she ate meat again when she was pregnant? When she was pregnant. pregnant. Okay. She was advised by her doctor that she needed to eat meat to get mm. the certain vitamins and in there. Yeah. I don't know if it's true, but it worked. Yeah. Well, um, I'm just, I'm, I take a vitamin B12 supplement uh, every day. My mother gets like six monthly injections of uh, yeah. vitamin B, which is like obviously the thing that we're missing out on yes. uh, by being vegetarian. Well, not necessarily missing out on, but um, it's like with um, being a vegan, like I think that the reason that I would struggle to be a vegan uh, is that you've got to put a hell of a lot of thought into things to make sure that you're getting everything that you actually need. Yes. Um, I've had one of the interesting things about... Um, Basically, every culturally specific diet historically has ended up being perfectly balanced uh, just because it's what the human body needs and what through thousands of years people have uh, 
come to realize uh, we should have this together. So with Gujarati food, for example, uh, also we're basically just turning this into a food podcast and I'm, no, I'm entirely fine with it. Yeah, yeah. I'm starving. <laughs> uh, with um, Gujarati food, because uh, it's um, vegetarian or vegetable-based, then there's always, well, everything's got, we'll have a little dal with it because uh, there'll be lentils and that's where you're getting your protein from and everything's yeah. uh, balanced. But now that live in a world where I will be having, you know, Swiss muesli for my breakfast and something uh, Italian for my lunch and something Gujarati uh, for dinner mm. or what have you and, and constantly like rushing around and picking stuff up. And I'm very glad that we live in a, a country in a world where that's possible. Mm. But got to keep up those supplements. Yes, oh, yes, true. I stopped eating meat when I was a child um, because like, I gather that there's a thing that uh, oftentimes when children discover what meat is for the first time and discover its relationship to animals, obviously children all like animals. Uh, so I have heard that oftentimes young children, when they first make that connection, will say, oh, no, I don't want that because that's animals. Mm. And I did that and then I just continued. Yes. Uh, I think that's exactly mm. why my daughter became a vegetarian because she made that connection and thought, well, that's horrible. Uh, do you think that the world will eventually go completely that way? Because uh, economically and environmentally, it seems to make sense. I think it'll be lab-grown. I think that, well, and like, I would have absolutely no problem with eating a lab-grown beef burger or something like that. Right. Uh, largely just out of the interest of it. Yeah. Uh, I know largely now there's environmental reasons uh, yeah. behind it and stuff. But, you know, like, I was very fortunate in that being a vegetarian for me was incredibly easy because I grew up in a culinary tradition where everything was largely based around vegetables anyway. Mm. And so the only time that my family would ever have uh, chicken was basically like once a week as a treat or something like that because largely it was the only thing my dad knew how to make. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, that time, you know, he, he would do that. And then <laughs> very frustratingly, my mother would still have to make something for me. Uh, so she wasn't even getting the night off, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, it always strikes me as odd that in terms of climate change, probably the the main reasons we are not all currently underwater is that Hindus don't eat beef and China institutes a one-child policy. <laughs> so, like, and it, you know, the second of those things is quite beastly. Uh, right, but... Um, <laughs> I'm so committed that like there's a milk bottle here in front of us, and like when that's done, I'm definitely going to be like studiously recycling it yes, all. And everything. And it's just like no, there's a billion and a half people of whom most won't eat cows, which are farting us to death. That makes that's what's doing. Yes, I always use that argument whenever my wife tells me off for putting something that can be recycled into a, into the waste bin, because I'm you know it, I'm sure it does help, but I, I can see that it's a tiny percentage. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But I think that, uh, you know, as with so many things in life, uh, they're, they're just minor psychological bombs for ourselves. But who's to say that that isn't valuable, you know, like in the same way that the antidepressant that I take daily may well, it, it could be a placebo for all I know. Yeah. Uh, but the fact of feeling like I'm doing something that to make myself better makes me feel better. Yes. Uh, and that's probably the same thing as when I studiously wash out the bean tin and I'm like, I'm doing my bit. Mm. <laughs> and don't I get to sleep slightly easier tonight? Yes. Uh, and, and have you suffered from depression in the past? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. As, a, as, a, as I say on stage, uh, in my early 20s, I was diagnosed as being clinically totes So that's, a, that's my situation. Well, we won't dwell on it. <laughs> we'll do it oh, I do enough dwelling on it. We should yeah. sit, sit outside in Mexico. The feeling of bottomlessness and love and sunshine and Mexico goes in. Yes, it goes in, definitely. Yeah. So, so where are we? That's two. That's two. And we're on number three now. We're going to take a short break here to entertain you with some adverts. We'll be back very shortly. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back. Right, let's get back to Ahir Shah and discover what else he would like to put in the time capsule. We're now mercifully moving away from the world of food. Uh, so if you've been interested up to this point, uh, this may be the time to switch off and go listen to Off Menu or something like that. Uh, or oh, get, get a pudding. Yeah. <laughs> but the third thing uh, that I would like to put in, uh, because it's something that I love and wish I could share with people who don't do stand-up, there is a point in Stir, which doesn't happen every time, but... The feeling that you get when there's a full room who are really good and everything's just right and you can afford yourself almost a second out of your... Because you want to remain in the moment and remain in the room because that's that's what makes... Uh, when it's properly singing, that's what makes it sing. But you almost allow yourself a half second out of it and you feel as though you're conducting an orchestra right uh, and you deliver a line there and you're like and this is when and violence come on uh, and then and like, let's get the timpani coming from over there and feeling that and feeling the waves and crescendo and diminuendo and everything of uh, doing that I'm even doing the thing with my hands now as, yeah, I, uh, as, I, as I describe it uh, but yes that feeling of when Everything is just so, mm. and it's all working in perfect concert. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I would very much like to preserve. Oh, uh, it's, a, it's a marvellous feeling. Anybody who's done comedy understands that feeling. Mm. And the strange thing that I always feel about it is that at that moment, it feels as if 
for you, time is moving at a different speed to everybody else. Yeah, the closest analogy that I've been able to come up with is um, when people talk about really good footballers and they say, it looks like he's got so much time on the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, obviously he doesn't. Obviously time is moving at the same speed for everyone. But when you watch Messi, it doesn't feel like time is moving at the same time as everyone. And you're like, when they say in cricket, like, oh, he's seeing it like a beach ball uh, or something like that. Like, And this, a rock is being thrown at you at 90 miles an hour. And yet, if you're Sachin Tendulkar in his prime... It must just look as though someone's throwing you a little underarm that you can whack with your bat that happens to be the size of a shed. Uh, yeah. And you have time to look around at the, the, the crowd and yeah. notice people and see things. And, and obviously, you know, like in the same way that uh, a great batsman will have his purple patches and have the periods where he's out of form and everything, uh, as no, no comic hits that every single time. No. But I love the feeling both of... When I get to be that person, it's exhilarating. And also, because because I know what that feeling feels like whenever I'm watching someone and I'm conscious of the fact that I'm a part of that happening mm. in the room, that's absolutely exhilarating as well. Just being able to watch the stage and be like, you are playing us like a fucking fiddle right now, yeah. and I love it. <laughs> like, yeah. And you can't let anyone know until you come off that... <laughs> how good it feels, but you are going to be absolutely buzzing. (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, Do you get that thrill also if you're in the midst of that? And that's something that you would have done before, practised in front of audiences, so you've, in a way, worked the material. Mm. And then suddenly, in one situation, when everything's flying, another thought occurs to you. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's all the more satisfying when you're doing that and there's something that you just offhandedly say and you're like oh that's what makes it click that's the keystone for this entire thing yes uh, and i found it and how good is that so i finally uh, built this whole routine into yeah. something that is complete yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and, that's and sometimes that can take ages like i there was um something that uh sort of routine about uh, depression that I had written and wanted to put in my 2015 show and I was working on with my director, but we just realised that fundamentally that well, the shape of this show did not accommodate this thing. But I was like, oh, but there's something in this, there's something in this, if I could just find it. And then three years later in the 2018 show, realised that there's a period where, oh, what exists already slots perfectly in here and it's so clear out of the context of the rest of this show, the 2018 show, how I make the bit properly sing and properly work. And that, you know, the, the delayed gratification of three years uh, when I finally got there was wonderful. I'm sure. And in fact, that thing almost of putting it aside and letting it, letting it breathe, mm. letting it grow. Yeah, I put that in the cellar. Yeah, yeah, let the idea... Yes, that often happens if you're writing a, a whole comedy show. I worked for a while as a script editor, and one of the great problems that, that people often have with writing comedy is, is that there may be something that is clearly extremely funny in itself but doesn't fit within the context of the show. Yeah. And that's the thing that you, you say, I'm afraid that's the bit that has to go. And they say, but it's really funny. And you say, it is funny, but it makes everything else less funny. Yeah. I think it was uh, Paul Byrne who was uh, telling me the story. He's a, a comedy director, uh, 
And he was talking with um, Andrew Maxwell and Ed Byrne, both comedians and Ed and Paul are brothers. And there was something that just like came out of conversation that either Ed or Andrew had said as a bit. And the other one was like, oh, yeah, but you could never say that on stage. And Paul just said, no, you couldn't say that on stage. In his voice, it makes perfect sense, yes. uh, which is a yeah, really good uh, insight. Yeah, it's, it, do you feel that there's an area of the world that comedy is banned from, as it were? Or do you feel that it's the joke that's important? I think David Baddiel yeah. was saying this. He was saying that he feels that as long as the joke is good, mm. then it doesn't matter what the subject matter is. Yeah, I think, well, I was take as my credo Lenny Bruce's assertion that the job of a stand-up comedian is to make an audience laugh once every 15 seconds. And... It's like, that's a bit, because yes, that's that's all you need to do. And mm. then the means whereby you pursue that end are entirely up to you. There's a huge difference between can't and should think better of. Or mm. like, you know, there, there's got to be some middle ground between I get to be a dick for the sake of being a dick and oh, we're going to be incredibly censorious and the fact that you have mentioned this sacred cow means that you are now beyond the pale. And I think that the middle ground there is the fundamental thing that everyone's or most people's uh, parents or teachers will have told them when they were children, which is manners cost nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So it's important if you're going to do jokes in those areas to make sure that you know what you're doing. You're not just being flippant. Yeah, exactly. Like, and when I, you know, there's a huge difference uh, between watching someone who you know is being, in inverted commas, edgy for the sake of edgy and trying to get a rise out of people. And that's that's not a comedian, that's a pub bore, uh, right? And there's a huge difference between that and watching someone who is very good, like watching someone like Dave Chappelle, who is at the absolute top of their game and is like, do you know what? I'm going to have a go at some topics that you may think one shouldn't discuss or what, but I have thought about this and I'm not just doing it to be, as you say, flippant uh, or anything like that, but I'm doing it because what comedy should be about is exploring things and exploring, exploring them comically, but exploring them seriously. Yes. Often by exploring them in a comic way, you're making a very serious point. Mm. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's the beauty of, like jokes are a zip file for a huge amount of information, right? You laugh because you get it, and then you're unpacking everything in your head. It's yes. beautiful. And also, it's very helpful for people who feel that they may be stuck in an area uh, in a solitary way, that actually they're the only person who has a problem with this thing or or it's difficult mm. for them. And to hear somebody talk about an area of, of their life that is similar yeah. can really release people, I think. Oh, that's how I felt... Uh, in a way, talking about mental health has been uh, very good for that um, on stage. And also, like, remember in the, the 2018 show, uh, largely revolved around that trip that I took to India, where uh, at the end of it, I spent time with my uh, grandmother at the end of her life. And she at the time was, um, she uh, died of breast cancer, but uh, had very advanced dementia as well, and it was it was just awful to see this person who I could only ever remember as being this powerhouse of sort of grace and love and compassion and intelligence and ferocity uh, sort of reduced to that state at the end of things. And I, uh, while there, um, 
actively considered euthanizing her uh, when uh, I was alone with her uh, mm. because she had, in her more lucid moments, she had expressed a sincere wish to die um, and, and to be to be put out of it all. And I couldn't do it. Uh, in the end, like, I, I sat, like, really intensely, like, weighing it all up um, and couldn't bring myself to do it. Mm. And when I was uh, going to talk about that on stage at the comment, that was one of the things that I was uh, very afraid of discussing because I'm like, but that's that's awful that you could that what sort of person actively could consider killing someone who they love in that way. Uh, And my director was just like, you'd be surprised, Uh, and. As a result of talking about that on stage, I have lost count of the number of people who told me after the show that my mother or father or my grandmother or grandfather was in a similar position and I went through exactly the same thought process and I couldn't do it either. Uh, And it really changed me and changed how I um, thought of myself and thought about a lot of things. And I felt like that was just a position that I felt so alone in uh, before and then telling people about it, I was like, oh, God, this is, this is so common, it's almost mundane, <laughs> right? But, but it's so horrible that no one will want to talk about it. <laughs> so you feel as if you're, you must be the only person who's, yeah. who's ever gone through that. Yeah. But I think almost anybody who's sat with somebody that they love, who's near the end of their life, and their life is either just full of pain or just full of, uh, of frustration and misery, yeah. and, and have had that person they love say to them, God, I wish this would end. Yeah. We've all had that debate. And it, Yeah. And, it, like, to be in that situation where you're like, I have the power to make this stop, and I feel actively selfish that I am not... I am choosing... I'm making an active choice not to do that because, like, inaction is also a choice. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, it's a very, it's a very, very strange feeling. Mm. Uh, and I, I love that you can talk about uh, that in... Je- like... What's it? I, I talked about that uh, in stand-up. Um, have you ever discovered the one thing that you wouldn't do for someone you'd do anything for? I felt like the meatloaf of euthanasia. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like, and just being able to puncture like that massive tension with something so daft <laughs> was really nice. I'd do anything. Yeah. I won't do anything. Yeah. Very good. Oh, dear. Has anybody ever had the courage to come up, or in fact, maybe the stupidity to come up and say, yes, I was in that situation, and I did do it? (laughs) No, but I would really admire them. (laughs) It would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. But it's also the thing, like, I wouldn't judge that person. Like, I I wouldn't negatively judge that person. uh, No, you may even ask them, how were they so brave? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, like, had I not been in that position myself, I, uh, don't know how I would, um, react to someone telling me that sort of thing. I think I'd still probably be fine with it because I could be like, well, I can sort of theoretically empathize with the situation and I can understand why that, uh, would be something that you'd do. But yeah, after it, I, I would just be like, yep, yeah, no, no sure, moral judgments here, mate. No. Like, that's, uh... So are you in, in favor then of euthanasia? Yeah. Yes. Wholeheartedly. Uh, because I think that there are, as with everything going to be grey areas, but there, there, are certain, there are certain situations where everything is so clearly black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, this is 
a human being, like the capacity for human pleasure and joy in this person has now gone mm. and all we are doing is extending pain. Yes. Uh, that I think, like, it's just like, it's not like someone who's got a bit dotty and the family are pushing a pen into their hand to sign yeah. the will and everything where you're like, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, but what's... It's perfectly possible to regulate those things, mm. though, surely. Yeah, well, and what's, what's really horrible about it is that w- when it is something that's, uh, sort of like, neurologically degenerative, obviously, like, if you don't have that but you have some other kind of terminal Ill- condition but you're still compus mentis, you can book the plane ticket to Switzerland, go out, dignitas, do it your way, mm. uh, and everything. But if you have lost what I think is the most important part of being a human being, which is just the fundamental fact of who you are, then you're not allowed to make that decision because, you, you know, in the, in the moments that you're capable enough to ask for it, you're never going to be able to understand T's and C's. Yes, you should have, you should have foreseen this. Yeah. You should have written it down when you were compass mentis. Yeah. But now, I'm terribly sorry. Yeah. And that seems unfair, doesn't it? Because everybody around them who loves them says... No, this is the thing they would have wanted. Mm. We know they would have wanted, even though now they're unable to tell us. Yeah. So I suppose maybe you've got to write it down beforehand, before it happens. Maybe. Maybe. Well, there we are. I, I, I don't know how we, we came down that route. But it's very yeah. interesting. And, and, and I have to say I agree with you, because all my experience of seeing friends or loved ones in those situations, I, w- I think it would have only been a blessing. Yeah. And it's, I think it's interesting to go down that sort of dark route on those subjects, because it is possible for humour to come out of those. My uh, aunt, who was 90-something, I went to see her. She had dementia, and she said to me, I don't know. She said, I'm 84 now. And uh, I said, how old are you? She said, I'm, I'm 84. And I said, actually, you're, you're 97. And she went, God, didn't time fly? <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So, in fact, there's always humour. That's in really the most great. Awful situation. <laughs> so we're going to let that take that humour and let it fly on stage for you. You're yes. completely in control, which is a marvellous thing. And it goes into the time capsule. Yeah. And then the fourth thing uh, that I'm putting in, I think, is going to be is in some ways a slight cheat because everything that I've put in thus far has been this in a way, um, but. I want to put in those brief moments of whole, all-encompassing love that you've, you know, and in in a way that that is what the smell of my mother's kitchen evokes uh, to me. That is what Being sitting opposite girlfriend. someone uh, in Mexico City uh, involves. It is what doing the job that I love in the way that I love the most doing it. That's what that is as well. And it's what being in India at 20 years old and just sitting with my grandmother as she read the newspaper and me just like stroking the skin on her arm because she used to be quite big and then lost her weight. She's got all this excess skin. And so it was just the softest thing that has ever existed uh, in the world. And it's those moments, it's, standing on a street in Cambridge at the age of 24 and experiencing a kiss that made it feel like there were film cameras rotating around us. It is standing outside a bar on Middlesex Street near my girlfriend's work and 
her looking at me and telling me that she loved me for the first time uh, in November. It's 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 all of those those sorts of moments of like yeah, just fully immersive love, be it romantic, familial, uh, any, any sort. Mm, yeah. And friends. Yeah. Yes. They are glorious moments, aren't they? They're few and far between, I think, strangely. You go through life feeling reasonably content with most things, but those yeah. moments where you realise, oh, my word, this is just perfect, are few and far between. They're yeah. well worth grabbing together and treasuring. There's a fantastic book uh, called Some, 40 Tales of the Afterlife, where the author, who's, I think is David Eagleman, I always fudge his surname, um, but he wrote sort of, there are 40 very short stories of when you die, this is what happens. And they're all just like nice little philosophical thought experiments uh, and everything. And all really, really lovely and worthwhile uh, to read for anyone who's uh, listening and indeed for you if you've not read it. But um, the first one in that book is uh, when you die you experience all of your life again, but all moments from the same category are lumped together. <laughs> uh, and it's like, so some of it is very frustrating. Like, you spend hours and hours just swallowing uh, and everything, and you spend <laughs> days in the shower, you spend 30 years asleep. Uh, you, spend you spend two weeks with your eyes shut yeah, and yeah, blinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, there are times, like, you know, the time that you spend crying and you know one of them is like lumping together all of the most pure forms of happiness and it's only like seven minutes or something like that but it's like but yeah it's those moments collated and you just sort of hope that they're they're peppered enough in life to to see you through to the next one you know it's like uh like an animal that's gliding and trying to catch the next little uh bit of wind to ride yeah and you've not got any children no so you've not got those ones yeah you know, and that that's a very strange thing because it's it's not only is there this extraordinary moment where you, you realise that actually without reservation you adore your child and that happens quite early on. For some people it takes quite a while. It may take a year. For me it happened fairly quickly, almost the moment I held my child and I realised that, that it was unreserved love yeah. and, and it was far more important than me. But at the same time that's mixed in with this Complete terror. Yeah. <laughs> I am now responsible for this thing yeah. that I adore. Oh, my God. I once, uh, I, I remember once talking to my father about this, and I was like, surely, you know, like, my sister, I've got an older sister, very successful career, she's married, has a house, it's all, all going nicely for her. I was like, well, Dad, you must think, like, you know, Nidhi is doing so well in that thing, like, I'm doing the thing that I really love and I'm doing all right with that and there's at least some sense of stability uh, in that now. And so, surely, like, do you ever take a moment and you, like, step back and be like, oh, that's a bit of a load off, actually. Like, it's not like I'm worrying about them in the same way as, you know, they're 16 and why aren't they home yet and that sort of thing. And he's just like, no, no, still worry every day in the set, yeah. at the fact that that's just going to happen regardless. And, like, I love the idea that, you know, my grandparents, even when they had children who were in their 50s and 60s yes. and stuff, were still like, oh, God, it's, 
is Vikram eating properly? It's like he's sixty-something-year-old man. Like, You're virtually the same age. Yeah, he's fine. You're, mate. Yeah. You're so old; it doesn't yeah. make any difference. Yeah. I know. Well, I still say to my children who are in their thirties, you know, almost forty. My daughter, when she leaves the house, I still say, "Mind the road," <laughs> and she looks at me as if I'm a moron. <laughs> but I couldn't bear the idea of uh, not saying it. Yeah. Uh, just being careful. I just, just want to just put that thought in her mind. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, that, that feeling of responsibility never goes away. Yeah. We all have those moments in life, that moment of astonishing joy. Yeah, it's that, that sort of swell just right in the middle. Uh, whenever I feel those things, I always think how much it makes sense that before more contemporary medicine, it like absolutely makes sense why everyone thought that the heart and the stomach was the root of everything. Yeah. Uh, and, that's what, and that like the brain was just a weird thing uh, that was sort of there and like might do something. But like, but it's, you never, fe- it, the feeling is never in there. No. It's, yeah, it's always in the middle of you, in the core. Yes. It's like breaking outwards. Yes. And, and all the descriptions of those moments involve that, don't they? Stomach churning, heartbreaking. Mm. A gut reaction. Mm. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. So uh, those, those are those are something worth preserving. I think I'm, I won't look at them individually because yeah. I think that would be to pry. Yeah. <laughs> but I will let you take those moments and put them in the time capsule. Right. right, we're very nearly there, which is a shame. I'm enjoying this chat. So uh, you have one item left, and I'm afraid this has to be something that, that you haven't enjoyed. Yeah. But you will be getting rid of it. This you can lock. So away. this is the one that just gets buried. Just get buried. Uh, <laughs> This is gone. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's wise to uh, just wholly bury um, anything that you don't particularly like, because you most of the things that yeah, most of the things that uh, you don't particularly like or regret or what have you are things that you can uh, grow from. And so it would have to be something relatively mundane. I'll tell you what I want to get rid of, and it's not. Um, <laughs> It's not even, it's, it's a facet of my character <laughs> that I would, I would love to be shot of. And it's knowing desperately that there's something important that I have to do and not doing it, but spending the entire time that I'm not doing it, just being in my head, oh, isn't it bad that I'm not doing that thing that's really important? It's just fucking do it then. Like, come on, how hard can it consume? And then you do it, and it's always fine. <laughs> it, it takes minutes. Yeah. It's so simple, yes. But, but I the, think everybody can identify with that. Yeah, but I think it, it's, it's somehow, it's deeper than procrastination. Because <laughs> it's procrastination with a side of self-induced guilt. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all totally unnecessary and yet i think universally human so yeah i would i would love for that to be buried in the mantle of the earth (laughs) (laughs) and yet i hear i know so few people and i do know some but i know very few people who actually when a thing needs to be done they just do it Mm. hardly anybody behaves that way oh absolutely and it's like whenever i you know hear interviews with writers or comedians or anything where they're discussing their process in inverted commas and every time I hear someone describe their process I just think you are a fucking liar (laughs) absolutely 100% everything that has just come out of your mouth is false because like we are not the same person but we are not sufficiently dissimilar (laughs) that you absolutely 
actually do the things that you're claiming that you do. Yeah, when you're supposed to do them. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. I do have a friend who's, who does that, but in fact, he has the opposite frustration in as much as it, everybody else annoys him because he's always saying to people, great, so you've just emailed it to me. Yeah. And then it, it doesn't come and he writes and says, I, I, I thought you were going to email the thing to me. And they say, yeah, I will. Well, just do it. <laughs> yeah, it takes seconds. Fair. People procrastinate. Yeah. Oh, I would, I would hate to be that guy. Yeah. It's why, it's why it's always better to be the person who's slightly late for everything than the person who's slightly early for everything. <laughs> well, the latter person is far more frustrated. <laughs> No, I'm a person who's early, so I... Oh, no, know. I'm aware of this. This is why I'm wearing a dinosaur onesie when you turned up to my flat. Everything. This is like 20 past uh, 11 and I'm still lying in bed. And I'm like, well, surely, Michael said 11.30. Yeah, about one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I've never interviewed anybody in a dinosaur onesie. <laughs> so I think it's had a little just... The listeners don't know, but for me, it's been this tiny little frisson. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we are going to put that in there. But you may regret it, so I'm not going to bury it. You, you can go and get it back when you suddenly realise, actually, I like procrastinating. Do you know, I would love to have it, I say when, is actually an if, uh, I retire. <laughs> I think that that would be a very useful thing. Yeah, so I would like for that to be buried and to be in a lockbox, the location in a lockbox and everything. And that's put in a safety deposit Swiss vault or something <laughs> somewhere with express instructions to my lawyers. In this, I have lawyers. Why, why not? That uh, it's only when I retire should I be given uh, the right. And then I can go find it. I can go on a quest. I can dig it up. And then... You know, you it's, it's, in, it's in pill form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick, Nick Cage and Nick I. Nick Cage and Pabacu. Yeah, yeah. It always does. He that. says yes to stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. They've reduced it into pill form. And finally, I, I dig up this uh, from Treasure Island. I dig up this thing and I pop the pill, uh, have it with a glug of water. And then for, from my retirement until I die, I am the world's leading expert at doing fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> The terrible thing would be if you got to that moment and then thought, oh, I'll pop the pill later. You'd think, no, I've still got it. I'm cursed. It never left me. Oh, uh, thank you so much for taking my My pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Ahir Shah. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or the provider of your own choosing, to hear all other episodes and to receive each new episode on the day of release. And if you have the time, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. Thanks. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed listening to it half as much as I've enjoyed recording it, then, well, I've enjoyed recording it twice as much as you've enjoyed listening to it. I mean, that's just maths. Bye. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.